Not a day goes by that we aren't shaped by words. Words spoken to us, words on the news, words on social media, our own words. We're shaped by words because there is a mysterious and yet certain power in them. The Bible says there is life and death in the power of the tongue. Sometimes words are used to build up and give life, and sometimes they're used to tear down and take life. So how can we be sure that we're speaking life to others? How can we avoid words that cut and tear down? How can we know we are honoring God with what comes out of our mouths? Thankfully, God himself is not silent. He is the God who speaks. In scripture and ultimately in Jesus, we have God's holy communication to us. His words should be the primary thing that shapes our words so that others might find life in him. Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you very much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Hello there across the way, Auditorium One. Uh, you guys look beautiful. Uh, howdy out there if you're watching online, Facebook or, or YouTube or whatever. And if you are here and you are visiting with us, we're extra special, uh, grateful, and happy to have you. We have a welcome center out beside uh, Auditorium One in the Commons over there. And we have a team there that would love to answer any questions you might have about uh, life, love, and the pursuit of happiness and also about Fellowship Greenville. Um, also, as you just heard from that absolutely stunning actress, uh, we are in a series this summer called The Words We Use. And we are pondering how God's word should give life to our words so that we can give life to other people when we open our fat mouths. Um, and so uh, one, of the, one of the things that you'll notice, if you hang around here for a while, you'll start to hear us talk about spiritual growth and discipleship um, in three ways. Life with Jesus, life in community, and life on Mission. We talked about these three at great length last summer. Uh, for us, it's like a, a three-legged, a healthy three-legged stool of Christian maturity. And so this summer, what we're doing is we want to think about how our words relate to each of these categories, each of these uh, edges of the triangle, if you will. Words to God. This is the, the top one. Things like confession and worship. Words in community, things like confession to others and conflict, like we talked about last week. And bottom left of the triangle, today we get to start thinking about what it means to use our words in such a way that we partner well with God on his mission of redemption. So what does it mean to use our words to bear witness to the coming kingdom of God, to bear witness, to testify to his great love for us? Or just really simply, how do we talk to people about Jesus who aren't trusting Jesus? How do we talk to them about the real and the eternal life that is available in him? Now, this question is so utterly important and vital for dozens of reasons, but I'll tell you right now, one of the main ones is, and I don't, I don't, know, I don't know if you know this, but God does not have like a plan B in his back God pocket. He, he, has, he has one plan, and that is the message of Christ through the body of Christ in the power of the Spirit of Christ. And so we have to think well about this so that we will be faithful to God and his mission. We have to think about our words as they relate 
to mission. We have to think well about it. Now, I would love to start our thinking about this um, this morning in, in sort of an odd place. I love to do uh, book commercials and be like, guys, read this book, read this book. Um, but David Bentley Hart is a Greek Orthodox scholar, and I actually don't recommend that many of his books. Um, he uses way too big a words. He's way too verbose with his vernacular, if you will. Sometimes he'll write like half page, just comma pregnant sentences that make the Apostle Paul look like he wrote Goodnight Moon. I mean, it's really bad. I mean, this guy, it's not good. Uh, but a, a few years ago, he did, David Bentley Hart did his own translation of the New Testament from the original Greek into English. And he, he has a 20-page intro in which he writes about, like, here's my methodology, here's what I'm doing with the Greek New Testament. And in his 20-page intro, he writes about how below average the Greek is of the writers of the New Testament, about how it's just it's not really good Greek. Um, just listen to how he says it. This is David Bentley Hart. He writes, The power and beauty of the New Testament are, for the most part, unrelated to its literary quality, which is often meager. The unknown author of the letter to the Hebrews commanded a fairly distinguished and erudite style and was obviously an accomplished native speaker of the tongue. And Luke, the author of the third gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, wrote in urbane, unspectacular, but mostly grateful prose. The author of the first letter attributed to Peter was clearly an educated person, but the language of most of the canon is anything but extraordinary. <clears throat> Paul's letters possess an elemental power born out of the passion of his faith, but his Greek is generally rough, sometimes inept, and occasionally incoherent. The Gospel of Mark is awkwardly written throughout, which he's not wrong, 16 chapters in Mark, and he uses the word immediately 53 times. That's, going, that's like going 60 with a bunch of speed bumps. You just, just, just awkward, Mark. Why, Vera? Why? Um, <clears throat> Dave Bentley Hart writes, the, gospel, or the prose of the Gospel of Matthew is rarely better than ponderous. Even the Gospel of John, perhaps the most structurally and symbolically sophisticated religious text to have come down to us from late antiquity, is written in a Greek that is grammatically correct, but syntactically almost childish. And then, of course, the book of Revelation, the last New Testament text, if judged purely by the normal standards of literary style and good taste, is almost unremittingly atrocious. Now, I want you to hear very clearly that here at Fellowship Greenville, we absolutely believe that Scripture is God's inspired word for his people. And having that confidence in the Bible, this is very funny, okay? David Bentley, this is very funny. He's basically saying, hey, when Paul writes, it's kind of rough and redneck and spastic. It's, his Greek is just all, it's like buckshot. It's all over the place. Matthew's grammar is rarely better than ponderous. This is like nerd academic cutdowns. This is like an Oxford elbow drop. John is syntactically childish. That doesn't mean anything, bro. Like, what are you even saying? And my absolute favorite is Revelation's style is unremittingly atrocious, okay? Now, this is funny. Maybe I just like to fake being smart, so that's why it's funny to me. But David Bentley Hart, what he's saying is that the writers of the New Testament, their style is kind of clunky and clumsy and folksy, almost like, Oh, bless their heart. It's like a fifth grader trying to write a college entrance exam or something. It's just, it's just not good. <clears throat> but he's going somewhere. Listen to what David Bentley Hart says next. This is all evidence, however. So all of this weird writing is evidence. It's proof. This is evidence, however, of a deeper truth about these texts. They are not beguiling exercises in suasive rhetoric or feats of literary virtuosity. Rather... 
They are chiefly the devout and urgent attempts of often rather ordinary people to communicate something seen and heard that transcends any language, but that nevertheless demands to be spoken here, now, and in whatever words one can marshal. The voices of the Christian New Testament blend, as it were, and what somehow forges out of all the ecstatic clamor is a genuine harmony. The vibrant certainty that history has been invaded by God in Christ in such a way that nothing can stay as it was and that all terms of human community and conduct have been altered at their deepest possible level. Right? You feel that? That's really powerful. But I want you to see his emphasis on words. The first follower of Jesus, David Bentley Hart says, could not help but speak about what they had seen and heard. And their voices, although different, the different voices of the New Testament, their voices, although different, come together and they sing one song. And the song is, God has come to us in Jesus and now everything has to change. So in the minds of the New Testament Christians, of the New Testament writers, not talking about the invasion of Jesus wasn't an option. It wasn't an option to not talk about it. But you know what's really weird and scary? I know some Christians today who might disagree. Now, they wouldn't flat out, just outright disagree. But they, you hear stuff like this. Hey, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. Huh? You What now? Like... I know what that proverb is trying to say, but it's wrong. Absolutely live out the message of the gospel and embody the freedom and the mercy that we have in Jesus. But that proverb is a false dichotomy because the good news of Jesus is a message that has to be communicated with words and not merely like, hey, good vibes or surface level morality. It has to have words. In fact, if we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 1, Luke actually shares the same sentiment. Go, go in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. What we have here is Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he's recording the last words of Jesus before his ascension to be with the Father. These are the last things that Jesus says before he ascends to go be with the Father. And in a way, what Jesus says is about to happen is exactly what David Bentley Hart writes about in his elaborate introduction. That words are required if we are going to rightly respond to history being invaded by God in Christ. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is a well-known passage. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now stop. <clears throat> then, you know what Luke does? Luke takes these words of Jesus, and he uses them to structure his entire book of Acts. Jesus' friends are his witnesses in Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7. They are his witnesses in Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 12. And then in chapters 13 through 28, Luke writes about how Jesus' friends are his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, there's a lot of things that we could say about verse 8, but I want to draw our attention to the word witnesses, witnesses. And if I were you, I would underline, star, circle, highlight, whatever you have to do. And I would note all the times that Luke uses that word in the book of Acts. It's several. You can go do that study on your own 
later. Now, <clears throat> this word in Greek is the word martus. It's where we get the word martyr from. Martus is an experiential word. Like if somebody tells you a story and you weren't there for the story, you can't retell that story in the same way as the person who told you because you didn't experience it. You didn't go through that event. But martus is not just an experiential word. It's also a legal courtroom word. So just imagine uh, a courtroom setting, if you, if you will. And uh, Your Honor, um, uh, I'd like to, to call my next witness to the stand. And this guy walks up there. He, he, he sits down. He sits by, behind the microphone. And then, Sir, would you, would you please state your name for the record? The guy just sits there. It's just crickets. The guy's dead silent. Sir, sir, where were you on the night of, of June 5th? 2021. Sir, tell me what you saw the night of June 5th. The guy says nothing. Worst witness ever, right? Why? Because he's a wordless witness. He doesn't say a thing. A witness is incomplete without words. And this is why David Bentley Hart says that the New Testament is about rather ordinary people communicating something seen and heard that transcends any languages, any language, but that demands to be spoken right now in whatever words we can marshal and muster. This is also why, because every witness requires words, this is why Jesus says, with the power of the Spirit, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So here's the question. Really easy question. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with being Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth? Do you, do you feel compelled to talk about Jesus' great love for you? It's not hard for you to talk about other stuff you love. It's really easy. It's just natural. It's a reflex. But what about the, the greatest love in the entire universe? Is it hard for you to talk about Jesus' love for you? When you're, when you're called to the stand to testify about the beauty and the grace and the truth of the gospel of Jesus, are you silent? Are you a wordless witness which is no witness at all? Or do you want to happily and humbly speak about the sin-forgiving, hope-sustaining, fear-crushing love of God in Christ? And just full confession here, I, I regularly feel like I don't do a very good job at this when it comes to things like personal evangelism. Like, I, I feel that burden probably, probably weekly, I would say. I, and I know that it can be a layered process and that it can be relational and that takes time. And I know that God is bigger than our categories and he can take the stuff that we say and use it in incredible ways. And I absolutely pray for opportunities and for wisdom and for boldness in those opportunities. But a lot of times, man, even as a pastor, as your pastor, sometimes I just want to know, all right, God, what's, what's the thing I'm supposed to say right now? Like, what's the right thing to say here to, to point people to Jesus? And maybe you've asked similar questions in, in different contexts. Like you have a sister, and you guys are really close, but she, she left her faith a few years ago, and you still want her to know that you deeply, deeply love her, but you also don't know how to normally bring up faith in just a, a natural, normal conversation. You don't know how to do that. You don't know what to say. Or, or there's a neighbor who's like across the street, diagonally across the street from you right there. And you've got a great relationship with them. You, you know, you yell howdy at them across from the, your yards. But you know that they're very weirdly Christian. They go, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And you start to realize that they said that so that you wouldn't talk about it. So what do you, what do you say to them? Or like you have this coworker and you're actually pretty good friends at work and you guys complain together, you know, just, you guys should pay each other for counseling and therapy to get each other through. But, but then you, 
you, you realize after a while this person is just very, very vaguely spiritual. And they just love the idea of spirituality in general. And anything you say, they're like, yeah. And they just, they're just all in on anything. So how do you pinpoint, hey, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. How do you, how do you talk to somebody like that? And there are endless scenarios and contexts that have their own respective questions. So what we're going to do is we're just going to assume all those questions. We're going to take all the illustrations we just mentioned. We're going to put them all in a blender. And these things are going to come out like this today. We're simply going to ask, what should faithful words of witness sound like? What should faithful words of witness sound like? So how should God's word of the gospel fuel our words as we seek to point others to God's love in Jesus and speak life into people who don't know Jesus? And yeah, I man, that's going to sound different if you're talking to your sister or your neighbor or your coworker. But we're start trying to point all of them to the same Jesus. And so what do faithful words of witness sound like? That is our question for this morning. <clears throat> now, here's, here's the game plan. Here's the strategy for answering this question. In Luke, uh, in Acts chapter 1, Luke records Jesus saying, you will be my witnesses. And then... For the rest of Acts, Luke records story after story of the first Christians doing just that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at four examples throughout Acts that are going to be instructive to us as we seek to be wise with our words and responsible to God's mission. So what does it mean to uh, be faithful with words of witness? What does that mean? Four pictures from Acts are going to help answer that question for us. And before we get to the first one, um, we're going to go through these examples chronologically in Acts, but also we're going to go from most general to most specific. And you could even argue that we're going to move from easiest and hardest <laughs> in terms of w- what is required out of you. So I think the last example that we're going to give is going to require the most out of you. Also, uh, while each of these snapshots and little pictures from Luke and Acts is supposed to be encouraging to us, each will come with a, with a kind of sh- shadow challenge and difficulty or a hurdle um, that we also need to consider. So let's explore what should faithful words of witness sound like. Four pictures from Acts. First picture, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47. <clears throat> Peter has just preached his famous Pentecost message. 3,000 people have trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And immediately following Peter's sermon, Luke gives us a glimpse into the life of the early church. Check it out, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, we could talk about three dozen things in this passage. I have to limit myself, but I just want you to think about the words that they use. So the first way Luke describes the early church is he lists four things in verse 42. Look at verse 42. And the first and last of these are all about words. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, which also include words, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
So they stood firmly on God's word clearly spoken in the gospel, and they taught about it, they encouraged one another with it, they fellowshiped around it, and they prayed about it. And this led them to live lives of self-giving love that are reflective of Jesus himself. Look at verse 45. They sold their possessions and gave the proceeds to anybody who was in need. So they, look, this early church, they held life in an open hand and not a clenched fist, which is just like Jesus approaching the cross. And their lives were seasoned with, and you can look at, look at it there in the end, verse 46. Their lives were seasoned with gratitude and praise in verse 47. And then I love the surprising result of all of this in verse 47, at the end of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day to day those who were being saved. So watch this. Hey, do you want your words to matter? Do you want your words to lead people to Jesus, people who don't know Jesus? You want it to walk them up to the cross so they can see the beauty of Jesus? You want your words to do that? Good. Love other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the broadest and most general way to be witnesses with our words. We should spend them on other believers. In God's family, you should enjoy others. You should pray with others. You should pray for others. You should laugh with others and eat and drink with others. You need to sing and forgive and cry and grieve and serve and share and confess and do Bible together with your words. Hey, Jesus said, they will know, they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And so for us, what do we do to be faithful to God's mission? With this example, we should delight in God's people as a witness to those who are far from God. Delight in God's people as a witness to those who are far from God. And this requires our words and all of life. That's what it requires. This means loving Jesus' family with the same grace that you have received from Jesus. So, People who don't know Jesus, they don't need vain and empty words. They need to see that what you believe changes the way you live. They need to see grace in action. And one of the ways that we do that is we delight in God's people as a witness to those who are far from God. Every single person you ever meet, you ever come in contact with, they are looking for a sense of family, a sense of home, a sense of belonging. And as followers of Jesus, we have been given that sense of belonging that everybody is pursuing. And so one of the ways that we need to live out our gratitude is by loving God's people. Now, the challenge that lurks in the shadow of this example is that we live in a very, very consumeristic culture. We're having possessions and property and cars and clothes and toys and stuff is often a major part of people's identity. So materialism is one of America's uh, most recent favorite uh, pastimes and functional saviors. But the implication of Luke's picture here, and this is not a perfect equation, but the text kind of suggests the following. That if your mouths aren't this open in scripture and prayer, and if your hands aren't this open with your possessions, and if your doors aren't this open to your home, and if your hearts aren't this open to others, and if you hold your life in a clenched fist and not an open palm, the result likely will not be, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is not going to happen if you're not using your words to speak life into other brothers and sisters in Jesus' family. So for way more reasons than we realize, we need the people of God and we need to delight in the people of God with our words, just like this picture in Acts chapter two. That's picture number one. Now, picture number two, maybe just a page for you, go to Acts chapter three. Acts chapter three. Peter and John just heal a guy and this 
crowd gathers outside the temple and no filter big mouth Peter's like, oh good, I get to talk some more. He loves this opportunity. Um, And this context is different than the context of Acts chapter two. This is not the life of the church. Rather, Peter is about to engage, he's about to engage with religious people. And these people wrongly think, oh, I know what God is like and I know what God is up to. I don't know if you know anybody like that. And they're like, oh no, no, I know exactly what God is like. And they, they make God just like them. They make God in their image. Now, because that's the case, and Peter is talking to these religious people, <clears throat> Peter uses like biblical spiritual language to show them what God is truly like in Jesus. Peter tells them, guys, 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 God's plan all along was to get to Jesus. Remember the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph thing? Remember all that? All those promises are to get to Jesus. That's what Peter does in kind of his sermon when he gets everybody's attention here in Acts 3 and 4. <laughs> and then look at verse 17. Look at Acts 3, 17, 3, 17. Peter says, now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Now, the, the super snobby religious elite guys get really, really annoyed with Peter and John, but guess what they can't stop? They can't stop the gospel from moving forward. And look at the result of this in Acts chapter four, verse four. I love this, Acts four, four. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So that's the 3,000 in the Pentecost message. That's others along the way. That's others who came to faith because of the example of the early church, plus the people right here in Acts three and four. And I'm sorry, I can't not include a couple more details in this story. Look down at verse 13, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Peter and John are literally called to the stand like a witness to explain themselves before this council. Uh, Verse 13, Luke writes, Now, when the council saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that. You feel that? I hope people would be able to say that about me, that, oh, I recognize that Jim has been with Jesus. But what I love here is that when Luke describes them in verse 13 as uneducated and common, uh, just forgive me for a second, the, the Greek is agramatoi kai idiotai, no grammar idiots, okay? That's really fun. That's how Peter and John are described. That's what David, that's what David Bentley Hart is talking about. These guys are not flashy intellectuals. They're not winsome motivational speakers. They're backwoods, small town hick dudes who had been with Jesus. And the result is, They were going to talk about it. Look down at verse 18. (laughs) Verse 18. So the council called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you got to be the judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, there's so much, again, in Acts 3 and 4. But what we have to do is, against the backdrop of this religious audience, Here's a simple way for us to be faithful like Peter. We should know God's word as a witness to people who are confused about God. We should know God's word as a witness to people who are confused about God. Now, there are some people who can take this principle of knowing God's word and they can run way too far with it. And they think that they can be the final judge as to who is really a Christian or not. That's not what I'm talking about at all. There are also people who go, well, if I have all the answers, then I'll just kind of look down my nose at everybody and everybody will need me. This is not about having all the answers. 
What I'm saying is that so, so many people, guys, we live in Greenville. There's so many people who know enough flimsy, spiritual, God-like language that they think they are cool with God and they think God is cool with them and everything's fine. And they have zero relationship with him. But scripture, a careful seeking of scripture and knowing of scripture shows us exactly what God is really like. And if you want your words to be energized for witness and they're not energized by God's word, you won't be equipped to call religious people to repentance like Peter did. And this requires a little bit more out of you than the community and the fellowship of Acts 2. This requires, yes, you reading scripture, but also you letting scripture read you. The the Greek word for read is about knowing, not just I read a word, it's about an intimate thing. And it takes time to do that for your life and your words to be so immersed and saturated in God's word that they are shaped and transformed. It takes time for that. But another reason that this requires more out of you is that in this story and so many stories in Acts, we see that when people use their words as a witness for Jesus, they are often met with opposition right? Often met with opposition. You keep reading Acts and you'll, you'll see it. Because what people need is not always what people want. And if you try to put your finger on that, it might not go pretty. Now, now listen, yes, the gospel will call people out of death and into life. It will put a, a finger on, on where people have a sin problem, but that doesn't give you a license to be a jerk, spouting Bible verses off that people don't understand. The fine point here that we need to see is that knowing Scripture deeply helps clarify who God is and what he has come to do in Christ. And if the gospel message is one of love and grace and truth, then our words need to be seasoned with the same, even when we meet hostility or opposition or pushback. That's picture number two. Encourages us to know God's word as a witness to people who are confused about God. Picture number three, let's flip a few more pages, Acts chapter 17 this time. Acts chapter 17. This passage is never not pertinent for Christian witness and mission. (coughs) Highly encourage you to go look at it more on your own later. My dad did his uh, doctoral uh, work on this passage and wrote several hundred pages, so I'm really going to accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished in five minutes, not at all. Um, The context of this passage is unique, and it's distinct from the previous two. Uh, Look at the last line of Acts 17, verse 16. 17, 16. It says, Athens was a city full of idols. Now, in this city, Athens, they loved new teachings and new ideas and new philosophies and getting a new iPhone every three months. Like, Athens was this really secular, really modern hustle and bustle city in its own day. They were culturally savvy intellectuals. So think like Boston plus San Francisco, that's Athens. And go ahead and read the whole thing later. But guess what Paul doesn't do? He doesn't walk up to the contemporary and critical thinkers of his day and go, hey guys, remember what God said to Father Abraham? No, he doesn't do that. That is not their frame of reference. He walks up to them and goes, hey guys, look, I see that you have a statue to an unknown God like a yet-to-be-named idea that you're intrigued about, that it might be out there. Can I tell you who I think it is? That's what he does. Now look at verse 24, Acts 17, 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served with human hands as though he needed anything. 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually that far from each one of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. And even as some of your poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. And he keeps going, but look down in verse 32. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked him. Opposition again. But others said, ha, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed among those uh, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So what should faithful words of witness sound like? Uh, we got a lot of pictures from Luke. First, we should use our words to delight in God's people as a witness to those who are far from God. We should also know God's word as a witness to people who are confused about God. And Paul's example in Acts 17 is an encouragement to understand how culture thinks as a way to engage others where they are. We should understand how culture thinks as a way to engage other people right where they are. If I get in a conversation with somebody and I'm asked about something biblical or theological or scriptural, I'm going to have 74 proof texts and go, here's what the Bible teaches. But when Paul goes to make a theological point, guess how he anchors it? Guess how he anchors his ideas? He cites their modern thinkers and poets. He doesn't go, hey, you should believe this because the Bible tells me so. He doesn't do that. He's, he's citing John Lennon and Chris Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Jordan Peterson and Simone Veal and Wendell Berry. He has a keen grasp on how Athens thinks as a culture. How are you doing with that in terms of how our broad culture thinks? I mean, from where I sit, this is, this is what I see. I think a lot of conservative Christians in the American South, that's me and you, are prone to do the exact opposite of this. We are prone to look at cultural ideas and cultural leaders and go, you're all bad, wicked, evil, and gross. Ooh, and I have to keep my kids away from you too. I have to mute all this and, and I, have to filter, I have to do all this because all those ideas are garbage and we have to like protect the innocent. For, we have to do that. And you don't know how to patiently see the redemptive underpinnings of cultural art or entertainment or ideas or socio-political and philosophical possibilities. But guess what? Paul did and he wasn't scared of it. So this is like an invitation to consider how somebody else is trying to find meaning and purpose in the universe, in their own life, without, without being it related to Jesus and the gospel. And we need to go and see how other people are thinking. And here's the deal. Not primarily so we can attack it right away and say that it's empty, but actually the exact opposite, so that we can find points of agreement and say, yeah, yeah, I totally feel what she's singing about. Or I get why you would believe that. But what if there's a deeper desire underneath that one? What's, what's the desire behind the desire? Or a deeper feeling behind the one that she's singing about? This is what Paul is doing when he goes, Hey, didn't one of your poets say, In him we live and move and have our being? Now, the challenges to this idea are several. And it requires a lot, a lot out of you to give yourself to fully thinking about something that you don't fully believe. That does require a lot out of you. But I also see two great errors here. For some Christians, they go, yeah, 
And then they take this way too far and they end up making this culturally contingent, culturally cool Jesus. And when you run into him, you don't really have to change to follow him and you don't have to change to be like him because he's exactly like the culture. And the other error is some Christians are so fear-based and they're so scared and they can't stand this idea that they're not willing to consider it at all. And their Jesus is so different and so other and so separate. And his primary posture towards humanity is a wagged finger and a, and a, and a scowled brow. That, that's his primary. The people are like, no, he can't, Jesus can't relate to normal people. And those are the two great errors right here. But guess what? Paul is right in the middle. He knows that this kind of understanding of cultural ideas is a fragile place to be. And also, please pay attention. This is point three. This is not point one. This point is meant to be understood and implemented in the flow of other things, in the community of faith with God's word open before us. We're supposed to think well about how the people around us are considering how to find meaning in life. But perhaps most challenging here is that so many people in the West legitimately think that the church is filled with narrow-minded, greedy people who only cause harm. They would even go, oh, there you are trying to tell people that they should go tell people about Jesus and trust Jesus. They would even consider this indoctrination, and some would consider it indoctrination to the point of like emotional abuse. And the church's reputation in society sometimes is that of an elitist, like religious or political club filled with judgmentalism, and none of this is the way of Christ. And it breaks my heart that the love of Jesus gets eclipsed by the extremism of some people who profess to follow him. However, we can guard against these things if we learn to think the thoughts of the culture that we live in and we learn to speak the language of the culture we live in so that our words of witness can actually be heard and understood so that we can introduce them or reintroduce them to the real Jesus and the life that he offers, both now and forever. That's picture three, understand how culture's thinking. Lastly, picture number four and go all the way to the back of the thing, Acts 26, Acts 26. <clears throat> One more episode from Paul's life. And like Peter and John <clears throat> uh, literally called to take the stand before the council in Acts 3 and 4, uh, here Paul is literally called to take the stand in front of King Agrippa. He's a Roman ruler. And rather than loving God's family, knowing God's word, or thinking patiently about cultural ideas, here, Paul gets really personal about his own life and relationship with Jesus. He even tells Agrippa about his really dark past that he started out trying to kill Christians and, and persecute Jesus' followers. And then, look at what he does. Verse 12, Acts 26, verse 12. This is uh, Paul speaking to Agrippa. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests to persecute Christians. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people, from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and turn from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who were sanctified by faith in me." <clears throat> 
Paul keeps going, but look at Agrippa's response in verse 28. All the way down verse 28. When Paul is finished, Agrippa says, Ah, Paul, in a short time, would you persuade even me to be a Christian? <laughs> Meaning, Agrippa's hearing Paul's story and going, Bro, your, your personal story is super intense and like it's pretty compelling. And I know what you're doing. You're trying to get me in on Team Jesus. I know what you're doing. So, Based on this picture from Acts 26, you should share your grace story as a witness to the power of God's love. <clears throat> we need to learn to share our grace stories as a witness to the power of God's love. Paul's story was a grace story. It was all about grace. He was a first century terrorist. If you are killing people and you think you're doing God a favor, that's called terrorism. That's what he was doing. And Jesus met him and changed him. And some of you might be like, well, my story is not as intense or drastic or like grace-based as Paul. No, 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 no. All of our stories of coming to Jesus are about grace. They're all grace stories, and we need to learn how to speak those things and how to share our personal stories of life with Jesus. It does not have to be anything fancy or flashy. It can include your life before you met Jesus, how you came to realize your great need for him and trust him, and then your life with Jesus since then. And it's one thing for the gospel to stay in the realm of the abstract and be a little distant. But if you're talking to somebody, your personal story of how Jesus has rescued you and how he's still faithful to you, that is not a detached idea. People need to hear you tell your story about how Jesus is changing you. That's the gospel in action. But now here's what I'm convinced of. This one might actually require the most out of you. Now, there's one level on which it's not going to require the most out of you because we all like to talk about ourselves, okay? We know us better than we know anybody else, so it's really easy reflex reaction to just talk about ourselves. That's not what I'm talking about. I think that this one might require the most out of you, not only because it kind of implies the first three suggestions out of the first three pictures, but it might require the most out of you because you might have to take the risk of talking about the shame of your past, the guilt of your past, and the embarrassment of what you've done. Paul's like, I used to be killing people, right? To talk about the sin that God saved you from, the addiction that God brought you out of, that can feel super, super heavy. Like you can't do it. Like you, your mouth can't physically open to say those things about your past. Or if you want to get super real, how hard is it to talk about your sin struggles right now and then go, but you know what? I think God is faithful and that he's going to bring me out of this. That can, that can, require, so, that can require so much next level faith to trust God in telling someone else that story. And here's what I want to tell you as one of your, your pastors. Evangelism is not a career or a job. It's not an event. Telling people about Jesus has been over-professionalized. And it, dude, it might still work to bring a friend to church so that the guy with a microphone can tell you about Jesus. But last year proved you can't count on that. that shouldn't be, the buck shouldn't stop with that. Here's the deal. As pastors, we want to encourage you and equip you to be his witnesses and use your words to point to Jesus like Acts 1.8 says. To know that the gospel goes with you wherever you go, anytime you go, anywhere, and it's not by accident. In God's sovereign plan, you know, it just sounds so dumb, but it's so terrifying and wonderful. In God's sovereign plan that might seem totally foolish to us, he has chosen, he has predestined to use our words to show people their deepest need and his greatest provision that is Jesus. 
Our job is not to save people, but to be a faithful witness to who Jesus is and what he came to do, no matter where you go or what you're doing. And listen, if you're telling people, hey, Jesus can deliver you from this, and then you don't have any examples or any stories about how he has delivered you, actually, Jesus will not be seen as worthy like he should be. So what, is, like, what does it sound like for you to share your grace story? What words are you going to use to describe how God has rescued you and what he's still doing in your life to prove himself faithful? I love Revelation 12. They overcame the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's what we're talking about. Speaking clearly about how God is personally at work in our hearts as a testament to the power of the gospel. God, please give us strength for for things like this. Now, let's take a step back from our four pictures, maybe a step all the way back, and just kind of look at the entire forest of the book of Acts and not just a few of the trees. You have been given the power of the Holy Spirit, and you, look, will be Jesus' witnesses in Greenville and to the ends of the earth. And guess what? That might include really awkward conversations with your sister or brother at a holiday meal, and you're going to be begging God and praying God for wisdom and words in the moment. And maybe that will include a very patient relationship with your neighbor to show them that the God of Scripture is not like they thought, like Peter in Acts 3 or 4. And perhaps it will include you learning what your vaguely spiritual Athens coworker thinks about purpose and existential meaning in the world. But you will be Jesus's witnesses. And when you take the stand, you're either going to be a poor, wordless witness or you'll be a faithful one in which you use your words to do things like delight in God's people and, and know God's word and understand how people are thinking and speaking and why, and also use your words to share your own personal grace story. D- doing things like this will make us faithful to the mission. But just like all these pictures, every time, every time we'll be met with pushback. Yes, there will absolutely be challenges. This is a sacred and nuanced responsibility where we need the Holy Spirit. There will be questions about sin and death and hell and judgment. But the content of our message is that Jesus took those things for us at the cross. He emptied those things of their power in his resurrection. He's the only one who never deserved to be separated from the Father, but he was separated for us because that's what our sin deserves. And his exile from the Father is what welcomes us home. He is our substitute and he is our representative. And if we trust and obey Jesus and we swear allegiance to him, rather than sin and death and hell and judgment, we get righteousness and life and hope and acceptance. We get mercy and peace and love and intimacy right now and not just one day in the future. And here's the deal. I can't believe this. If this is true, if the Jesus story is really, really true, it's really, really historical, feet on the ground, actual, factual, and indelible, that God has invaded history in Christ, then nothing can stay the same and all terms of humanity have been altered at their deepest possible levels. And now we, hey, hey, me and you, us, we Normal, ordinary people, we have to communicate something that transcends all language, but that has to be spoken now, here, and in whatever words one can marshal. We get to, 
We have to. We don't have any other options. Why would we not spend our words on Christ? Fellowship Greenville, the gospel of grace welcomes us as freely as it sends us. And our commissioning is incomplete without words that bear witness to Jesus as the one who has conquered death, as the Lord of life. And so may we long to be faithful witnesses to Jesus and the good news about him. And I hope you want that too. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, please, please, please fill us with humility and fill us with wisdom and fill us with confidence and fill us with awareness and sensitivity and forthrightness and unction. Spirit, fill us with these things. Grant us a sense of holy urgency and responsibility to make known the worthiness of Jesus who crushes fear and kills death and conquers sin. Jesus, thank you that you are abounding in loving kindness and that with you there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We don't deserve it, Lord. And we ask that the word of your gospel would fill our church, would fill our lives, would fill our lips, would fill our words so that other people would come to know you as worthy and awesome. Jesus, please, please, please. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.